Welcome to the Heart of the Father podcast. We're glad you're here and able to listen in. We're praying the Lord will speak to your heart through this message and that you be transformed more and more into the image of Christ. We're talking about the coming of Jesus. A lot of intense things surround his coming. Jesus described the times building up to the end when he would come again as being like the birth pangs of a mother, labor pains. I can tell you from experience, I've never had one, but I have watched my wife and walked through all of our births. We had them all at birthing center. All of our children were born in the same house and most six of them in the same bed. So I watched very closely the labor and I was there as my wife hung on me when she was having labor pains. And I can tell you that it's unpredictable. Our first child of seven, from the time of the first labor pain, was born in two hours. Our seventh child, sitting here, took 15 hours. And so you can't predict it. You think the labor pain is coming hard. Oh, the baby's going to be here any minute. Maybe not. It might stop for a few hours. It might stop for a half a day. The midwife might say, you know what? Just need to go back to bed and go go to sleep. You, you, You can't predict it. But it's intense, and you know when it's happening. And Jesus, to me, this is just brilliant, of course, because he said it, but... It's, it's so helpful in understanding what happens. There's intensity that happens in waves in birth pangs, and that's the way it happens in the end times. There's, there's times where it's so intense, and you think, this has got to be it. He's going to be here tomorrow. But then it subsides, and only the Father knows the times and the seasons, and we don't really know when that is but then the labor pains will come again and they become really intense. And so the end times are like that. The first thing that Jesus said when his disciples asked him in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, what's gonna be the signs of your coming? When's all this stuff gonna start happening? Anybody know what the first thing he said was? He said, don't be deceived. Don't be misled. There's going to be a lot of deception that comes. And many are going to be deceived. He, he said this in Matthew 24, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. So this is deep deception to draw people away from the Lord that's going to happen. We see that it's happening now, right? Anybody see any deception going on? Anybody see, yeah, the signs of the Antichrist on the horizon? Yes, in our culture, in our society, for sure. So I'd like to have a discussion about deception and how it works this morning and how we stay free from it. Because Jesus repeated that more than anything else when he was describing what the end times were going, the difficulty of the end times. His return is glorious and amazing And at some point, we should talk about what it's going to be like when we're with him forever. That's glorious. 
But my heart during these sessions is to try to prepare us to speak word of preparation so that we're ready when he comes. That's his most common exhortation and command when he's talking about his coming. Be ready. Be on the alert. Make sure you're awake. Don't go to sleep. Be ready, right? He says it over and over and over again. So Let's do that. I want to focus on that. We've got this last shot at it. Not that this will be the last one, but in this series. And so I've titled this message, Protection from Deception. But this deception is a real thing. And if you say to yourself, well, I'm good. I'll never be deceived. You're a prime target. You're a prime target. So let's be vigilant Let's have a discussion about deception, how it gets root in people, and how we can avoid it. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 is my main text. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to eventually make it down through verse 12. We'll start at verse 1. I'll read some verses, and then I'll pause and make some comments. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Verses 1 and 2, we'll read first, and let me make some comments on that. Now, we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Now, this letter, we don't know exactly how far apart it was from 1 Thessalonians, but Paul was only in Thessalonica for a few weeks. He wasn't there very long, but obviously, knowing Paul the way he was, he stayed up all night long and taught them, and he just kept going to make sure that they were as well prepared as possible. But in the letter of 1 Thessalonians, he explains to them about the coming of the Lord. And here they are, they're in a position where they're all in an uproar and they're in confusion because they're thinking that the Lord has already come. And how is that possible? And it seems like Paul didn't even know how that happened because he's saying, don't be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. To me, what makes the most sense is that somebody gave a prophecy to that effect. That's what spirit, many, I think the NIV translates it as prophecy. And I think they're on the right track. The spirit, the spirit said, because this church operated in the gift of prophecy, we know that from 1 Thessalonians 5 where Paul told them, don't despise prophetic utterances. Well, why would you despise prophetic utterances? Because they're flaky sometimes. And you roll your eyes. That's what the idea is. You roll your, oh, here we go again. That doesn't, don't throw out the baby with the bathwater, though. We don't despise prophesy. So prophecy, what did Paul say do with prophecy? He said, look for the good and hold fast to that. We don't look for what's wrong. We can dismiss that. How many know how to eat the hay and leave the sticks? Have as much sense as a cow. You, You don't eat the sticks. We eat the hay. So So prophecy is valid, but prophecy is not valid for setting our doctrinal beliefs. And Paul's making that point because it seems like that's what happened. Because look at down at verse 15. 
if you want to look down there, I don't know if we can get it on the screen or not, maybe. But verse 15 of this same chapter says, So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of my mouth or by letter from us. Stick to the Scripture. That's how you set your doctrine of when Jesus is coming and what's going to happen. You can't take a word of prophecy and build your theology on that very shaky and very dangerous. Prophecy is not intended to bear that kind of weight. It's for edification, exhortation, and comfort. It's not to build doctrine. That's what happens through teaching of the Scripture. And that's Paul's point. Listen, next time if you guys get confused about something, go back to what we wrote down. Go, go back to what you know is solid. Not to the prophetic word that was printed in the newsletter. That's not a right basis for building your theology. That's, that's good preaching. Thank, thank you for that encouragement. Praise God. And then at the end of the letter, he writes, if you want to look at it, just interesting. These are interesting to me. It may not be to you, but hopefully it is. In chapter 3, verse 17, he goes, I'm signing this letter with my own hand. This is my own mark. This is how I really sign my authentic letters so that you won't get confused in the future. Stay with the word, okay? So they're confused about when Jesus is coming. They're thinking somehow that the day of the Lord has already come. And then he says in verse 3, let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. So, what two things have to happen before Jesus can come back? The apostasy, which is the falling away. That's really what it means. It means turning away. There's, a, there's going to be a massive turning away of professing Christians from the gospel as the end times approach. Jesus said it himself. <clears throat> Excuse me. There is. And he's, Paul's going... If that hasn't happened, and I told you the man of sin, who is the, who is the, the Antichrist, is going to be revealed. He's going to take his place in the temple. He's going to proclaim himself to be God. Until those two things happen, the day of the Lord can't have happened, guys. I told you that when I was with you. Take the prophetic word. Take the brother or sister who said it, sit them down on the chair and say, you know I love you, right? You know I love you, right? I would do anything to help you. But what you just prophesied wasn't right because it went against the tradition that Paul left for us in the letter. So let's get that right. Let's get back to edification, exhortation, comfort as the purpose of prophecy. And so... Those two things are going to happen. There's going to be a mass. This is not just the normal falling away. In the parable of the sower, the parable of the fields, right, Jesus said that there's four different kinds of soil. Did he not? The first one is the rocky soil. And in the rocky soil, what happens? The seed falls on the wayside. And because they don't understand it, Satan comes and steals it immediately. And then you have the seed that falls on the uh, the rocky soil, the first is the roadside, the, first is, the second is the rocky soil. They spring up immediately with joy. They're ready to jump off the Empire State Building for Jesus. But then when affliction and persecution come, why is this happening to me? Why have you got to let this happen to me? I love you. 
There's that. And then the third ones are, they start to grow, and then the cares of life, the anxieties of life, and desires for other things creep in and choke the word. The weeds grow up around it and choke it, and the plant never produces fruit. Those three out of the four never produce fruit. The kind that produces fruit, he says, are those who receive it with a good and honest heart. And they produce fruit by persevering. They stay with it. They stay with it. I've tried to learn how to pray. I've come to three prayer meetings, and it's just not working for me. Three prayer meetings? Three. It's just not working for me. It's just too hard. I just, I don't feel the joy. And I... Keep going. Just keep going. Just keep going. Persevere for how long? Just keep going. Just keep going. It's like my orthodontist told me when I had braces and then he put retainers on me. I said, how long do I need to wear them? He goes, just keep wearing them. Just keep wearing them. Because he knew if he told me six months, I would only wear them for three. Because after all, this is me. And so my teeth are going to set better. No. Just keep wearing them. Just keep wearing them. For how long? Just keep wearing them. Just keep wearing them. You've paid all this money to get your teeth straight. Now you're going to not wear the retainer. That's really dumb. Don't just keep at it. Same thing is true in the spiritual disciplines, in walking with Jesus, in learning how to pray, in learning how to feed on the Word of God. I've read it. It just doesn't make sense to me. Just keep reading it. First of all, get yourself a translation you can understand. But read it. Ask the Holy Spirit. He's the teacher. Please make this alive when I read this. Would you make this burn inside of me like you did to the disciples on the Emmaus Road? Would you speak to me though the word burns in me and it marks me and changes me? Well, I've done that five times. Five times. Just keep doing it. We bear fruit with perseverance because we keep doing it. We keep going after it. Two things must happen before Jesus comes. One is there's going to be a massive falling away. And the reason we're going to get into here in the scriptures is because deception is going to be incredibly strong and lawlessness is going to be multiplied. And the combination of those things is going to cause a lot of people to turn away from Jesus. Matthew 24, verses 10 through 13 I'll read that to you. Matthew 24, 10. At that time, many, say many, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many, say many, many false prophets will arise and will listen, mislead many. Say many again, many, because lawlessness is increased most people's love will grow cold. That, that's, that's really what the Greek text says. Most people's love will grow cold. We'll, we'll see why lawlessness has that effect on love here in just a little bit. But the one, verse 13, but the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. Now, now you, you can't believe those verses away. They're going to happen. The Son of God whose word will endure when the earth is gone, spoke those 
upwards. They will happen. There is going to be a massive falling away. There's going to be a separating of the wheat and the chaff before the final day of separation. That is going to happen. I remember as a young believer, not throwing, I don't have any stones to throw. I really don't. I look in the mirror too much to throw stones. And I know. I know what I need. I know my desperate need. But I, as a young believer, I heard a very... Um, prominent, famous preachers say, if the apostles would have had the faith that I have, they never would have been martyred. And even as a young believer, as dumb as a box of rocks, I knew, what? Jesus promised they're going to kill you. He told Peter, What kind of death he was going to glorify God with. Remember that in John chapter 21. He spoke these things. When you're young, you put your clothes on, you dress yourself, and you think you're good to go, and you're going to go. But when you get older, they're going to put something on you, and they're going to take you where you don't want to go. And he spoke that of the kind of death by which he would glorify God. Why is it that the book of Revelation is filled with the martyrs singing, praying, crying out? And Jesus is celebrating them because here's the reality. We're called to be witnesses for Jesus. That doesn't just mean we give vocal testimony, the greatest and most powerful testimony to the worth of Jesus is that he means more to us than everything in this life that's precious to us and we're willing to put our money where our mouth is. Now in America, we don't have to do that in that way, but every disciple has to do that in one bite at a time. In the bite of going to work. In the bite of learning to pray. In the bite of treating your children right and your wife right and being diligent in your business. All of those things, one bite at a time. But Jesus calls us to lay down our life, and he says, if you're my disciple, you have to take up your cross, how often? Oh, daily. And you have to deny what? Yourself. That means, you know, the word deny means to say no. You, you, we have to, as disciples, say no to ourselves all the time. Well, this is what I want to do. No. That's not what he wants me to do. Well, this is what I'm going to do. No. I remember lots of times in my life, lots of them, where I am telling the Lord, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to do this anymore. And I could hear the gentle voice of the Lord inside of my heart saying, that's okay. You're going to do it anyway. Because we made a deal. And you said, I'm your Lord, and you bowed the knee to me, and you put all your chips on the table, and I took you at your word. So now you're not your own. You've been bought with a price. So if I tell you to do something as hard, so do it. I'll give you the grace. There's no whining in heaven. 
everybody says, yes, you're worthy. And the martyrs don't regret that they gave their life. It's the most powerful testimony in all of church history when people gave their life for Jesus and they were happy because they knew that their inheritance was much greater than everything that they were leaving. Now, I've got a lot of inheritance in this life. I have an amazing wife. I have seven beautiful children. I have 14 grandchildren so far. And I, I'm still urging them. You've got to keep going. I want 25. I want the big picture. But here's the reality. Everything else, this was the deal at the beginning. If you love your wife, your children, your father, your brother, mother, houses, lands, whatever, if you love them more than me, you're not worthy of me. You, you don't see who I really am. If you're, if you're trying to renege on your deal, you don't see it. Not really sure how I got off on that tangent. Um, but it was good. So there's going to be a massive falling away. Well, that's where it came from. The man of lawlessness is going to be publicly revealed. Let's read down verses 4 through 10. 2 Thessalonians 4, chapter 2, verse 4. Let me pick up with verse 3 again. Let no one deceive you in any way, for it will not come unless the apostasy, the falling away, the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now, but we don't. So that in his time he will be revealed. Verse 6 there. They knew, but we don't. There, there's, there's at least 30 scholarly opinions of what that restrainer is. And none of them has given me a lot of clarity, to be honest with you. There, there's possibilities. So the point is, overall, the Lord is in control of this thing. He's pulling the strings. And the man of lawlessness is not going to be revealed until God says now. Whatever means he uses, he uses. We don't really need to know that. These are the kind of things we love to know. Who do you think the restrainer is? Is it the archangel Michael? Is it? We don't know. We weren't there when Paul shared it. And he didn't reiterate it here. He just goes, you guys already know this. Like, what's going on? Why are you confused? I told you that. Seven, verse seven. For the mystery of lawlessness, notice that word because it's huge in the whole end time scenario. Lawlessness. The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. Then that lawless one, verse eight will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth. I like how Paul says this. He's not even willing to give this guy a half of a breath. He's going to be revealed and boom, he's dead. He's out. The son of God is not going to put up with that very long. There's going to be a really little time, but he's going to appear, but he's dead. He's gone. Who's in charge here? Who's the bigger? Okay. He's going to bring him to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is the one, now he's describing the anti, what we call the Antichrist. This is what John called in his letters the Antichrist in the book of Revelation, the beast. 
That is the one who is coming in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders. We should, I should point out, when it says false wonders, it doesn't mean they're not real or they're pretend. It means they're done in the service of a lie to convince people of what is not true. So let me just read you Kenneth Weiss' translation of that, which is expanded, but it's, it clarifies that point, and other, a lot of other translations bring it out. Um, this is one place where the New American Standard is not as clear as I would like it to be. It's okay. Weiss' translation. Miracles demonstrating power and attesting miracles of startling, imposing, amazement-wakening character which deceive. So... There's going to be phenomenal miracles that the Antichrist performs. It's not going to be a rabbit out of a hat. It's going to be phenomenal where everybody is like, but it's all to deceive the people that see him. That's part of the deception. Well, God had to have done that. No, no, no. no. The, the devil can do things too when God allows him to. He's still on a a leash. Verse 10 says, And with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. So let me me give you seven points of, of who the Antichrist is and who the man of lawlessness is. Real quick, okay? This is what we just read in these verses. Number one. He is a human being. He's a man. You might laugh at that. I've had people ask me, do you think that the man of sin could be the media? No. He's a man. He's a man. The media may speak his language really well, fluently, excellently well, perfectly well every day. Yes, but he's, he's a man. Number two, he undermines and opposes all God-ordained authority. This is part of what lawlessness is. The man of sin is going to prepare the way for himself by undermining all authority. Any of that going on today, like defunding the police, like defunding parents from being able to discipline their children, putting them in jail, any of that happening, like with the authority of God being undermined in culture, it, it is. The spirit of lawlessness is already working. It's a mystery That is being revealed. So that is happening. Number three, he exalts himself to be worshipped as God. He wants to be worshipped as God. That's always been the devil's goal. That's why the devil offered Jesus all of the kingdoms of the world, right, in the temptation. Because he's the God of this world. Jesus called him the prince of this world. He has authority to do that. But the whole goal is Satan is trading. He put all his chips on the table if Jesus would just worship him. No. That was a really hard no. He was born for destruction. He's the son of destruction. That means he won't last long. He's going to be destroyed when Jesus comes. Number five, he's directly sent and empowered by Satan to be a substitute for Jesus. Number six, he operates in amazing and convincing spiritual 
power. If you look at verse 9, he's the one who's coming in a, who is, his coming is in accord to the activity of Satan. So he's personally sent and empowered by Satan. And it says, with all power. Say all. All power. That is the word dunamis. The devil has his own dunamis. The Antichrist is going to move with all power. It's going to be astounding the things that he does, but it's all in the service of deception. Number six, he operates in amazing, convincing spiritual power. And then number seven, he is unparalleled in his ability to deceive, and that's in verse 10. With all deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. That is a very important and powerful phrase that we're going to look at a little bit here as we move forward. He deceives. In Daniel chapter 8, when Daniel's talking about the Antichrist, he's the, he's the little horn in the book of Daniel and his visions. And he, Daniel describes this man as being one who flung down the truth. So everywhere he's undermining and throwing down the truth, he's undermining the authority of God because that makes room for himself to rise and to be preeminent. And he backs all of his deception up with amazing, miraculous work. So what is lawlessness? This is the lawless one. It says three times in this passage that he's the lawless one and that he operates through lawlessness. This is a big word. How does lawlessness work? What is it? Here's my definition of lawlessness. Lawlessness is a particular kind of sin that is characterized by rebellion against God's authority. It says, I determine what's right and best for me, not God or anyone else. At its core, lawlessness challenges and defies Jesus' authority and his word. Oh, Jesus' words are only authoritative if they conform to my desires. This is happening in the church world today. We're going to pick and choose. One of the church fathers, Augustine, said, I'm paraphrasing, he said, if you pick and choose what parts of the word of God that you like and what parts you don't, it's not the word that you believe, it's yourself. It's happening massively. And it makes me sad. Again, I don't have any stones to throw, and I'm, I'm not this um, hardcore, harsh, legalistic. At all. I've, never, I've never been legalistic in my life as far as the Lord. Just not that way. But it grieves me when I see behavior in Christians that is it's, it's just widespread. I had a friend who called me on Friday. And we were just talking, catching up. I said, what you been doing? He said, oh, my wife and I went on a cruise, on this cruise ship. I go, yeah, how was it? He said, well, actually, it was my first and last cruise. Um, he didn't love it. He said, I was really seasick. But he said, another thing happened. Uh, it went through a weekend, and on the Sunday morning, they gathered a big ship, a lot of people on the ship. And they gathered and they said, hey, we're going to have a time of worship at 10 o'clock for anyone who's a Christian if you want to come. And so they had a worship band up there playing 
modern worship songs, and they were there worshiping for an hour, singing worship songs, worship choruses, and, you know, everybody seemed to be into it and lifting up their hands, praising God. There was, from his estimate, he said he thought there were 500 people there from the ship, a lot. He said, but the most disturbing thing was then that night, we're up on the top deck of the ship, everybody's up there, and there's, there's a whole section where, you know, there's open bar and open liquor flowing on a, on a cruise if you've ever been to one. I, I've never been on one. Um, I feel like I would be claustrophobic. But nevertheless, I don't just, to me, nah, I shouldn't go there. Um, <laughs> Tim will come up to me and he'll say, that I was really offended. I says, I run a cruise ship. I remember when in the early in Heart of the Father, I'm going to tell off on you, Tim. <laughs> Jeremiah was up preaching, and he was making a comment about Texas Cattle Company, how when you go there, you know, they give, if it's your birthday and you show your driver's license, you get a free meal. But he said, I've been invited to a birthday party of somebody else so that we can all pay for their free meal. Right? And everybody knew what he was talking about. So Tim, he didn't know Tim at that time, but if you know Tim Connors, he's, he's this way. Um, Tim walked up to him, and I'm watching him because I've known Tim for decades. And I go, oh, I know he's got something up his sleeve. <laughs> he, he walked up to Jeremiah, and he starts talking to him. And I'm in earshot, so I'm hearing what he's saying. He said, I just want you to know that I'm the manager of the Texas Cattle Company, and I don't appreciate what you just said about my restaurant. And Jeremiah was like. <laughs> and then Tim started to laugh. Uh, so that's my good friend, Tim. Um, how did you get me off on that, Tim? Oh, yeah. Thank you. Everybody's talking a long time, and I can't, I can't read lips of everybody at once. Okay, so he's on the cruise. They're up on the, that night, same night. This is Sunday night, up on there. And he, this, is what, this was his take on it. He said, it was astounding because a bunch of those 500 people were on that top deck, and they weren't just drinking. They were drunk. They were drunk, and they kept drinking and kept drinking. And, you know, if you've been around that, if you were raised in that way like I was, like, you know when people are drunk, right? So they were drunk? He goes, how is that possible? It's possible because we can embrace parts of the scripture that we want to embrace and we're good with that but the parts that we don't like of all the many warnings of don't be a drunkard well then what we do is we pull the grace card on that and we throw that so so basically are we not lawless Here's the question we have to ask ourselves moving forward. And this is, this is not a throwdown. It's a serious question. What things in my life are actually an expression of lawlessness? What things in my life do I excuse that Jesus said, don't do that? 
I need to know because that's an expression of the lawless one and that's what opens us up. Lawlessness, as we're going to see, is just the flip side of the coin of deception. They go together. They run together. They're in the same lane. Because there's no greater deception than saying, Jesus, you're my Lord. One of the stunning things that Jesus said about lawlessness is in Matthew chapter 7. So we probably should just look at that real quick. You're familiar with this passage. It's one that nobody has on their refrigerator. Matthew 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many, say many, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, here we go. you're, You're my Lord. Did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Now, I don't believe that at the judgment, you can look Jesus in the face and lie to him. I don't think you can do that. Because here's perfect light standing before you who knows everything, and you know he knows everything. You're not going to make up a story right then. I think they're telling the truth. Here's, Here's the point that's terrifying. You can have the anointing and still be lawless. You can have the anointing to do miracles, cast out demons, and prophesy, and still be lawless. Because you didn't submit your life and your actions to the lordship of Jesus Christ and his deception. And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You called me Lord, Lord, but you didn't do what I said. The ruling anchor of your life was not me, it was you. And you invoked my name when it could help you, but you didn't live your life in right alignment with what I said. That's lawless. It's an expression of the lawless one. I know this is intense, y'all. This is birth pangs. These are things that we have to think about because deception, Jesus said, is going to be so massively thick in the air that it's going to be touch and go that even if the elect are going to be deceived. That's heavy deception. And the lawless one is selling it based on lawlessness. It's really okay. You can do what you want. Watch this miracle. Boom. Well, if he said it, it must be true because look at the miracles he could do. Faulty. Charismatic Pentecostal church, we've never been good with that throughout the history of revival. We've seen people that moved in powerful, powerful manifestations of the gifts of the Spirit. And we thought, well, whatever they say then must be true. False. Don't go with the word of prophecy. Go with the tradition that's already been handed to us. Build your life based on what won't sink in the storm. 
You're not going to be able to say to Jesus in that day, well, Lord, they prophesied this. He's going to be like, you had the tradition. That's what you build on. That's what we build on. So that's troubling that Jesus would say that you can have the anointing and still be lawless. Another thing that he says about lawlessness that is insightful but also disturbing is in Matthew 24, 12, it says, because lawlessness is increased, and the word there means be multiplied. Because lawlessness is multiplied, most people's love will grow cold. This is an expression of the part of the great falling away. Why would lawlessness kill love? Because lawlessness is radically self-centered. If there's lawlessness in our life, and we're making our own way, and nobody tells me what to do, bless God, that's just your opinion. You're just taking scripture to try to beat me over the head, you Bible thumper. No, the issue is not what I say. The issue is what he said. That's what's going to matter. No. Percentage-wise, if you run percentages, he said most people's love is going to grow cold. Lawlessness makes it impossible to love God because we're actually in rebellion against him but only in pockets. Lord, I'm 60% not in rebellion against you, but 40% is not bad, right? Less than half. I'm only, this is my testimony, I'm only 40% in rebellion against Jesus. That's going to be my my plea at the judgment seat. Lord, I was only 40% in rebellion against you. I only ignored 40% of what you said. Like, is that going to hold water? I don't think it is. Here's the thing. Yo, I know by your faces this. We spare things. We, we need to be honest in this season. If we believe what Jesus said about the approaching of that day when he comes, and we don't know when it's going to happen, need to be serious about what he said. The environment's going to happen. And here's the way to be protected from deception is to let the Holy Spirit root out of us the lawlessness that remains inside of us. Go before him. Honestly, I do this all the time. Go before him and say, Lord, whatever is in me that is not like you, that is resistant to you, that is not pleasing to you, would you please show me? I can't see it. I know that I'm blind, but I, I, I can't see it. Show me what it is, and I'll repent of it. And you know what he does very often? He goes, okay. And he has somebody else show you. But you don't like that. I'm only going to do what God showed me, not what you tell me. Lawless, because he's sending his agent The Lord has rebuked me in my life by people that I just chafed at that he sent to me. I'm like, really? 
Really? You're going to send... <laughs> I'm like, no way. He's like, yep. Are you going to hear my voice when I speak, or are you going to dismiss it because of the vessel? Lawless. And I'm like, oh. He goes, I'm actually giving you a double blessing because this allows you to humble yourself at the same time. (laughs) And you can thank them because they were right on the money. It's beautiful. And then your heart gets chafed, but it gets clean. And it's beautiful. This is, this is called sanctification. This is called Jesus loving us well. How loving would it be to know that there's lawlessness lodged inside of us, but him not actually help us to see it so we can repent of it? That's beautiful. That is love. It really is. Lawlessness kills love towards God because it's actually rebellion against him. So you have to harden your heart. Lawlessness kills love towards brothers and sisters because it's radically self-centered and you can't love someone if you're radically self-centered because love is always seeking to bless someone else. So the love of most people is going to grow cold because lawlessness is multiplied. It's everywhere. This is what we're heading towards We don't know where we are in the birth pangs, but we're heading towards greater and greater intensity. And from everything that I can read in the book of Revelation and in the passages in the Gospels and in the passages in the letters, the intensity is going to keep increasing until the very end when it comes to a crescendo, right? In the 1940s, my parents' generation, every Christian thought Adolf Hitler was the Antichrist. We knew he was. Murdering the Jews like that, annihilating, it was obvious. Here he is. And then Mussolini. And then Joseph Stalin, who murdered over 12 million of his own people. These have to be the Antichrist. No, they are an Antichrist, but not the ultimate one. And we don't know when that's going to finally happen. But that's pretty heavy birth pangs. Jesus said that's what it's going to be like. But this is going to happen. One of the hardest books to get through in the Bible, in my opinion, is the book of Judges. Be challenging to preach on it. Talk about cringy. Some of the stories in there are like, did I just read that in the Bible? It's very dark. It's people out of control. And the last sentence, the last verse in the book of Judges says this, in those days there was no king in Israel, no God-ordained authority. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Lawless, where lawlessness reigns, every kind of evil thing happens. It is deception. Lawlessness and deception are two sides of a coin. As I said, they run together. Deception flourishes where desires are not connected to God's truth and not submitted to Jesus' lordship. So, in the last days, lawlessness is going to appeal to our own personal desires. And it's astounding to me, even though I'm not on the internet, 
Uh, I'm, I'm on the internet. I'm not on social media, but people send me stuff all the time. So I get it secondhand, which is about all I want. But, but the whole deal of everybody having their own designer Jesus is absolutely lawless. I'm going to have the Jesus, and I'm going to cut and paste the parts of him that I like. And I'm going to remove all the parts of him that I don't like and just pretend like they're not there. That's not okay. He is who he is. And when he comes back again, here's the thing. He's going to be who he is in all of his fullness. And to those who love him and those whose hearts are given to him completely, what does the scripture say in the first chapter of 2 Thessalonians? That he is going to come and be marveled at among those who believe. Like we, we talk the big game where we go, I know the Lord and I walk with the Lord, whatever. When he appears on the scene, we're going to be going, I don't know the Lord. Who are you? You're so much more amazing and glorious than I've ever imagined. The weight of your glory sucks all the air out of the room. Like my mouth is going to hit the floor and so is yours. We're going to marvel at his amazing glory and at his incredible holiness and his amazing power. And all the nations of the earth are going to see him and they're going to mourn because they're going to realize this is the one that throughout my life I gave the finger to. The Antichrist is a man of lawlessness. His message is lawlessness. His influence is deception. And deception plays on. Did you notice in 2 Thessalonians, let's, let's look at a couple of verses just to remind, and then we're going to read something to you. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 10 with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive or welcome or embrace the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe the lie in order that all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. There... There is an aspect to lawlessness and deception that is not just mental confusion. It's heart loves. It's what really is valuable to me. It's what really pulls on me. It's what I really, in the secret place of my heart, love and treasure. And he calls it here that they took pleasure in wickedness. In the thing that God hates, I took pleasure in that. That's really scary. But he pulls. The big part of deception is our own desires being unhinged to the truth of God. Let me read you this letter. I just got it two weeks ago. I got one similar to it like 12 years ago. This is a letter from McGraw, Cross, and Partners, LLC, Barristers and Solicitors in Ontario, Canada. Attention, Barry Nichols. My name is Sean McGraw. I'm a partner at McGraw Gross Partners, LLC. 
It may surprise you to receive this letter from me since there has been no previous correspondence between us. There's an unclaimed permanent life insurance policy held by our deceased client. The transaction pertains to an unclaimed life insurance policy savings monetary deposit in the sum of $10,550,000 U.S. with a reputable bank. The policyholder was one of our clients, Mr. Bruce Nichols. Uncle Bruce. <clears throat> I always loved him, my Uncle Bruce. He's a real estate developer and investor in Canada. He died in an accident on Highway 400 by Barrie, Ontario, Canada, six years ago. Since his death, no one has come forward for the claim, and all our efforts to locate his relatives have proved unsuccessful. How sad. The insurance company code stipulates that insured permanent policies not claimed must be turned over to the abandoned property division of the state after six years. Therefore, I ask for your consent to be in partnership with me for the claim of this policy benefit in view of the fact that you share the same last name and nationality with the deceased. If you permit me to add your name to the policy, all proceeds will be processed on your behalf I wish to point out that I want 10% of this money to be shared among charity organizations. How sweet. He knew I was a Christian. <laughs> While the remaining 90% will be shared between us. Well, that still leaves us $9 million and change to split. This is 100% risk-free. I do have all the necessary documentation to expedite, expedite the process in highly professional and confidential manner. I will provide all the relevant documents to substantiate your claim as the beneficiary. This claim requires a high level of confidentiality, and it may take up to 20 business days for us to cash your check. Oh, he didn't put that part in there. From the date of the receipt of your consent, kindly provide a research uh, research uh, reachable contact number for faster communication. And then he gives the email and the address and the phone number. I got one 12 years ago. It was from my dear departed Uncle George in London. Uncle George Nichols. And he only left $3.1 million. But I was, according to their research on Roots, I was one of his relatives. And so they were willing to get me that inheritance. All I needed to do was to send them $200 so they could get the paperwork filed. Now, if I contacted these guys, I'm guaranteeing you when they're talking $9 million, it's going to be $500, all right? <clears throat> but why would they waste their money sending out scads of these for me, I just laugh and I said, man, I should have kept the old one from Uncle George too. Pretty soon I am going to be a wealthy man with my relatives. Like I didn't know they loved me so much or even knew who I was. Um, here's the point. It plays upon the greed in your heart, right? And so that blinds you to the reality of the truth that they're just scamming you and a fool and his money are soon parted. This is what... Deception does. It preys and it pulls on the desires of our heart. We take pleasure in wickedness. Is it really wrong to sleep with my girlfriend? We love each other. We're going to get married. Is it really wrong just to live together and not to be married? Because after all, we love each other. And in the sight of God, we're actually married. 
for real. Brother, you just don't know how special our relationship is. I know. Lawless. You're believing a lie and you're deceiving yourself because you want to do what you want to do and you're trying to get God on your side to back you up and he won't. But on that day, We don't want to stand before the Son of God and Him go, the deception of lawlessness in your life is because you wanted what you wanted more than you wanted what I wanted. So verse 10. with all the deception of wickedness. See, see, here's the thing. The deception of lawlessness always leads us into compromise, 100% of the time. All the deception of wickedness for those who perish. Why do they perish? Because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. Here's what the love of the truth looks like. I don't want to do this, but it is true, and you said it in here, so I'm, I already made the deal. I made the deal. If I call you Lord, here's Jesus' statement in the Bible. Why? See, we're not the only people that ask God why. He asks us why, too. Why do you say to me, Lord, Lord, but you don't do what I say? That's a contradiction. You can't do that. The lawless one appeals to the lawlessness in people and confirms the rightness of rejecting God's authority with his amazing miracles. So the first question we have to ask is, do we? Do we love do we love? Do we love? This is agape. Do we agape the truth that is in the tradition that he left for us? Do we really? Or do we cherry pick and say, I'm 60% good, Lord. Do we love it? Because what we love for, we sacrifice for. And if it hurts, it hurts. And this is hard. And there's a training of sanctification. I'm, I'm telling you, there's been lots of times in my life, lots of times, still are, where I'm like, oh, I don't want to do that, I don't want to do that. He's like, well, what are you going to do? Many of you have heard this story, but it's the most powerful one I have. When the Lord dealt with us to have more children, we had two. We had the perfect nuclear family, mom and dad, son and daughter. Perfect. We're good. We're good. We're good. I'm trying to start a business, and I suck at it. I can't make money. And the Lord's testing my heart. 
and he dealt with me so strongly and with us. My wife, bless her heart, she, she knew what the Lord was saying. I, I told her, don't talk to me about it. I did. I said, baby, don't talk to me about it. I've already shut, this, this is a real thing. I've already closed that chapter. I've already had a vasectomy. Game's over! <laughs> and the Lord would not let it go. He, he just would not let it go. And I'm like, Lord, what in the world? How many times do I have to tell you I don't have enough money to have kids? Like, can you read these figures in my bank account? Like, there's only two. Like, there's not many. You see that I've been working 60 hours a week and I can't make money. I suck at doing business. And I know mama lied when she said I could do anything I wanted in life. He would not relent. I would get up and try to pray in the morning and there would, there would be. Like the Lord's like, that. I want to talk to you about this. I'm like, can we talk about something else? He's like, no, I want to talk to you about this. I'm like, I don't want to talk about that. I've told my wife I don't want to talk about that. And Lord... I, I really don't want to tell you I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to talk about it. I feel like in my heart I can't do it. And I really writhed. I mean, this was a writhing inside of my soul. I was like, I can't do it. I couldn't see how it was going to work out. I was terribly afraid that I wouldn't be able to provide for my family. I really was terrified. The most money at that point that I had ever made in my life was like $12,000 a year. And I'd read these things like, you know how much it costs to raise a child from, a, from infancy through college? $280,000. I'm like, I won't make that much money my whole life for one, for good grief. And he would not relent. And it went months. It went months. And every day it was like that. I was writhing in my soul. I felt like I was in agony inside. I said, I'm not trying to overhype it. This is really true. And I said to the Lord one day, I'm driving in my truck, and here he was again wanting to talk about it. I'm like, hello. I said, Lord, I acknowledge that you are dealing with me about this. I can't do this. I don't know why, but I can't do this. My heart is just shut off, and I've shut that page. And this was the game changer. I know the Holy Spirit put these words inside of me to pray. I said, but if you will help me and change my heart to want to do what you want me to do, I will do it. And he was like, done. He began to change my heart. This is a real thing. And I felt peace for the first time in a long time. And then I wanted, I wanted to do it. I, like the want to was created inside of me by an almighty God. And I wanted to. And I started to get excited about it until we looked into how much it cost to get a reversal, which was more money than I'd ever made in a year. I said, well, there you go, Lord. <clears throat> He's like, nope. And he brought to our attention that there was 
a urologist in Texas, New Braunfels, Texas, outside of Austin. <clears throat> Doc Leverett. I'll never forget the sign on his desk. I hope you all this is not too graphic. But his, his sign on his desk said, Doc Leverett, PP doctor. <clears throat> and he was a believer. He was a believer, and he had a heart for children to come into godly homes. And he said, I will do the reversal for 10% of what is the price going out there. And so we were on our way to New Braunfels. Yeah, it wasn't fun. It wasn't fun. I wish that I would not have. I mean, we talked about it before. Are we good with this? Let's make this. Know what we're doing. But then the Lord was like, no, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what your plan is. And if you think you got the agreement in your own head, why do you say to me, Lord, Lord? And then, boom. Got it done. Very painful. Awkward as can be. But at the first opportunity, I will tell you this, the very first opportunity, my wife got pregnant with our son Landon, who is a missionary to Muslims in Europe today. And I can't imagine my life without those other five children that I have. I'm like, how stupid. And I feel like y'all y'all weigh this because this is prophecy. I believe as I was walking after that, after our little boy Landon was born, and I was just thanking the Lord. I was just walking on the street, tears running down my cheeks. I said, God, you're so good. You're so amazing. And the Spirit of the Lord spoke in my heart. And he said these words. I believe with all my heart he said these words. He said, if you would not have obeyed me in this, you would have missed my plan for your life. And I felt my knees go weak. I was like, oh my gosh. I had no idea that this was so important to you. Because think about the legacy. I've only got 14 grandkids now, but there's going to be more. I preach it all the time. The legacy that the Lord had planned in eternity past. Because of my own desires and my own weakness, I wrestled with him and I resisted him. And thank God he won. He changed my heart. But here's the thing. These kind of things in our life are a test for us every single time where there's something in our heart. We just don't want to do it. We don't want to yield to what the Lord wants. But if we'll ask him to help us, and if we'll allow him to process our own desire and to conform it to his own desire, then he'll purge us from being self-willed and from being lawless, and he'll get that stuff out of us. He really will. There's a process that happens that way. But we have to yield to what he wants us to do and to respond to him. And by his spirit, he can change our heart and our life forever. Every time we release our selfish desires and submit them to the desires of Jesus, we move away from deception. That's so good. Every time we release our selfish desires and submit them to the desires of Jesus, we move away from deception. 
Growth in Christ could be described as the shift from being controlled by our own selfish desires to being controlled by the desires of God. Deception rides on the wings of our own desires being in the driver's seat. And as believers, we have to set our desires when they're contrary to the Lord. We have to set them down and say, God, deal with this. Change this. Change it inside of me. That's part of loving the truth. Loving the truth is being passionate about the word of God. I believe that. Read Psalm 119 one time. Memorize it. It's fantastic. It's David having a love affair with the word of God. Oh, I love your law. It's my meditation day and night. When I'm laying on my bed at night, I sit there and think about you and your word. I love it when I work third shift because then I have a chance to think about your law. So amazing. If we could get an inkling of that kind of love for his word, our lives would not stay the same. Do we love the truth? It's a very sobering But here's the question, the two questions that I want us to ask ourselves this morning. When I look in the mirror honestly, are there pockets of rationalization and lawlessness in my life? Number one. Number two, do I really, really, before God, love the truth even when it cuts even when it hurts, even when it costs me, even when it chafes me, do I love the truth that much? That is what the people of God have to do. Moving into an age where deception is as thick as peanut butter in the air and where it is accepted and even celebrated in the church of Jesus Christ, like they did in 1 Corinthians. Here's a guy who's shacking up with his stepmother. And the Corinthians are all like, isn't that great? The grace of God covers. No. Paul said, what are you talking about? I've already turned him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. You guys are sitting here dancing around a false grace that isn't true. The true grace of God empowers the true desire to please God. It doesn't cover disobedience and lawlessness. Send me to a false grace conference and let me preach I won't come out alive but I'll say the truth stand with me and let's pray come on let's pray let's ask the Lord this day to mark us with a love for the truth that burns and that won't stand for rationalizing what we want to get Father, we pray in Jesus' name that you would mark us this day with a true burning love for your truth and for the truth about ourselves and our pathway and our walk. Lord, would you mark us? Would you, in your mercy, reveal to us the areas where we're blind? Help us change our hearts, Lord, where we're stubborn. Change our hearts where we've been making excuses and rationalizing. Change our hearts and make them tender and pliable to you. Help us, Father, to see and help us to respond with a whole heart. And let this people be a band of truth lovers and truth livers. 
Let it be us, Lord, when you look upon our hearts and our lives. Let us be those who are truth lovers and truth livers, who refuse to yield to desires that are contrary to you and refuse to make excuses for what you don't excuse. Lord, we're asking for your help and your grace. As this season moves towards your coming, we pray that you would cause us to be a people who have clear and strong conviction about what's good and about what you desire and what pleases you and that we make decisions based upon that. Let us be that people. Let us be those, Lord, who are protected from deception because we don't deceive ourselves. I pray that for every man and woman, child in this room and on live stream. Mark us this day, Lord. Oh, God, don't let this fall upon deaf ears. Mark us this day. Come on, if you want the Lord to mark you, lift your voice to him and ask him to mark you. He will. Jesus, help us. Help us to be truth lovers and truth people. Help us, Jesus. Help our hearts where we've hardened them to be tender again to you and not to fear Lord, would you remove the fear that if we obey you, we're going to lose things that are precious. No, we're going to gain things that are precious. We're going to gain what is eternal. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father. We love you. We bless you. We trust you. And our eyes are upon you. I pray that you'd bless all of my family here, my brothers and sisters, all of your sons and daughters. And I pray, Lord, that this work and that this word would not stop, but that it would continue to flourish and to grow and that the atmosphere that we live in and that our culture here in this body would be those who are truth lovers and those who are truth livers by the power and the grace of your Holy Spirit. Let it be so. We hope this message has been a blessing to you. If you'd like to join us on a Sunday morning or other weekly gathering, know that you're more than welcome. And if you'd like other resources on or about this ministry, or for any deeper questions you may have, be sure to visit our website at hotfmlakeland.com.